everyone. I'm recording in the late afternoon for a change. My day kind of got off to a weird start and so here we are in the afternoon reading. Um it's another lovely gray day here. Um I don't really have any um chapter notes for you aside from I will be saying the names of some ships and some places, but I think you all are familiar enough with those that I don't need to go into that. Um, but you'll just have to forgive me for pronunciation errors, should there be any, in the inevitable case that there are. Um, one thing I was going to tell you guys, I hadn't mentioned it yet, is that this book's, the book itself that I'm reading from kind of has a fun history. Um, a little sad, a little fun. Um, when my brother was in jail, he told me that the, um, the library in the jail was pretty dismal. They had a, a you know, a rolling cart with books on it. And he said that the options for what to read was pretty dismal. You know, there was just wasn't a lot of good stuff available. <laughs> um, it was being used by, the good stuff got scooped up pretty quickly. So he was often very, very bored. Um, and he, uh, he did like to tell me stories and tall tales, and, and you never knew if what he was telling you was a half-truth or an all-truth or just made up, but you accepted it. And so um, he told me that while I was there, he had read Emma, which is another Jane Austen book, which I found vastly amusing because he knew I liked Jane Austen. Um, and he said he read it and found it really boring, uh, but kind of interesting. Um and so we talked a lot about Emma, and he, uh, I joked that he should read the other Jane Austen novels, because he'd already read one, he should just go ahead and read the others. And he was like, yeah, no, <laughs> not, not unless I'm dying of boredom again, would it be worth it to me? Um, and so for Christmas, not that first year, but a, a year or two on, I bought him a complete Jane Austen series. And I bought him a very pretty series, um, very, very feminine. Um, the books are all have lovely flowers and scrolling on them. And they'll have a perfect, you know, reading ribbon that you could have. Um, and they come in a big box set. And they're all hardback. Uh, it was just, <laughs> I specifically bought him something that would look a little over the top. And he... He had told me not to. I joked about doing it, and I did it anyway, And he, even though he told me not to. And then he kept it, which surprised me, because um, a lot of things that came into his life, you know, went again. He was very much easy come, easy go. People would borrow things. He wouldn't get it back. He'd hawk something, wouldn't get it back. Um, but he kept the Jane Austen series. He said it impressed girls who came to visit him, uh, which I always found funny. And I know he never read any of them. Uh, the bookmark ribbons hadn't been moved in any of the books. And because they spent so many years on a shelf with the ribbon down the middle of the book, they all have a little um, sort of break in the spine at the top where the ribbon was sitting too long. But it's still um, nice. And when he was gone, the books, I took them back into my possession Um because I'd never owned a set of Jane Austen, the whole set. I just owned, you know, one book or two books or the Kindle version and then one paperback and things like that. So, anyway, even though it's a 
I got a bittersweet story. I I am enjoying it, and um, I just wanted to share that little little backstory with you all. Um, the book is illustrated. Um, some artists, you know, um, watercolor of you know p- the feet of people dancing in the ball gowns, wishing around, or the design of one of the rooms. Um, just you know some. Nice little illustrations, but nothing too serious. If anyone's interested, I can post them um, maybe on a chat or on a blog or something so that you all could see them as well. But that's the story of the actual book and that I'm holding. And yeah, so without further ado, we'll get started on chapter eight. time, Captain Wentworth and Anne Elliot were repeatedly in the same circle. They were soon dining in company together at Mr. Musgrove's, for the little boy's state could no longer supply his aunt with a pretense for absenting, her, absenting herself, and this was but the beginning of other dinings and meetings. Whether former feelings were to be renewed must be brought to proof. Former times must undoubtedly be brought to the recollection of each. They could not be but reverted to. The year of their engagement could not be named by him, and in the little narratives or descriptions in which the conversation called forth, his profession qualified him, and his position led him to talk. That was in the year six. That happened before I went to sea in the year six. Occurred in the course of the first evening they spent together, and though his voice did not falter, and though she had no reason to suppose his eye wandering towards her while he spoke, Anne felt the utter impossibility, from her knowledge of his mind, that he could be unvisited by the remembrance of any more than herself. There must be, in the same immediate association of thought, though she was very far from conceiving it to be of equal pain. They had no conversation together, no intercourse but what the commonest civility required. One must want so much to each other, now nothing. There had been a time when all, all of the large party now filling the drawing-room at Epicross, they would have found it most difficult to cease to speak to one another, with the exception, perhaps, of the Admiral and Mrs. Croft, who seemed particularly attached and happy, and could allow no other exception even among married couples. There could have been no two hearts so open, no tastes so similar, no feelings in unison, no countenances so beloved. Now they were strangers." nay worse than strangers for they can never become acquainted it was a perpetual estrangement oh my god how gorgeous is that writing a perpetual estrangement what a phrase but it's so true i just feel that like every time i hear it um because when you watch the persuasion movies they always quote that one because um it's just so so well written you know once they'd been so much to each other, they they would have spent all their time together. They, no two hearts were so open, no taste so similar, no feelings so in unison. It just it just so perfectly exemplifies the feeling of a perfect love that is then gone, and perpetual strangers is just oh oh my heart. I love that writing. Um, that's one reason why I told you all I needed to read this book to you was because I thought Jane Austen was really at her peak with, um, or we don't know if it was her peak since this was her last book, but she was really at the top of her game rather, um, with, uh, 
with her writing because that the lines like that are just you know that those don't just fall off of the lips of pens of ordinary writers that's just gorgeous stuff okay um i'm gonna stop waxing on about that but oh my heart i love it when he talked she heard the same voice and discerned the same mind there was a very general ignorance of all naval matters throughout the party, and he was very much questioned, and especially by the two Miss Musgroves, who seemed hardly to have any eyes but for him, as to the manner of living abroad, daily regulations, food, hours, living aboard a ship, their surprise at his accounts, at learning the degree of accommodations and arrangement which was practicable. Practicable? Wow! Yeah! <laughs> drew from him some pleasant ridicule which reminded anne of the early days when she too had been ignorant and she too had been so accused of supposing sailors to be living on board without anything to eat or any cook to dress as if that were or any servant to wait or any knife and fork to use thus from listening and thinking she was roused by whisper of mrs musgrove who overcome with fond regrets could not help saying ah oh, miss anne if it had pleased heaven to pet, spare my poor son, cat your legs in the way, I dare say he would have just been such another by this time. Anne suppressed a smile and listened kindly, while Mrs. Musgrove relieved her heart a little more, and for a few minutes, therefore, she could <laughs> shit. Sorry, Taffy was chewing the book again. Um, she's taking a bath between my legs, and, um, she uh she takes objection to the book and now she's going after the bell and yeah she's she's a little all over the place today i i threw off our schedule and so normally i do this in the morning when she is sleepy and a little more mild sometimes and right now she's a little more active and playful so um but she still wants to be in my lap because this is what we do so anyway uh sorry we'll try to get back to it um See how it goes. Can I ring the bell, cat? Would you are you gonna attack it if I ring it? Okay, here it goes. Well you rang your bell. Does your bell count? Does your bell count, Katie? No. No, your bell doesn't count. We'll ring the real bell. Okay. She agrees. Anne suppressed a smile and listened kindly while Mrs. Musgrove relieved her heart a little more. And for a few minutes, therefore, she could not keep pace with the conversation of the others. When she could let her attention take its natural course again, she found the Miss Musgroves just fetching the Navy List, their own Navy List, the first one that had been ever at Uppercross, and sitting down together to pore over it with the professed view of finding out the ships which Captain Wentworth had commanded. Your first was the Asp, I remember. We will look for the Asp. You will not find her there. Quite worn up and broken up, I was the last man who commanded her. Hardly fit for service then. Reported fit for home service a year or two, so I was sent off to the West Indies. The girls looked at all amazement. The Admiralty, he continued, entertained themselves now and then with sending a few hundred men to sea in a ship not fit to be employed. But they have a great many to provide for, among the thousands that might just as well go to the bottom as not. It is impossible for them to distinguish the very set who may be least missed. Pooh, pooh, cried the admiral. What stuff these young fellows talk? Never was a better sloop than the asp in her day. 
For built at, for an old sloop, you would not see her equal. Lucky fellow to be get her. He knows there may have been twenty better men than himself applying for her at the same time. Lucky fellow to get anything so soon, with no more interest than his. I felt my luck, Admiral, I assure you, replied Captain Wentworth seriously. I was well satisfied with my appointment, as you can desire. It was a great object to me at the time to be at sea, a very great object. I wanted to do something. To be sure you did. What should a young fellow like you do ashore for half a year together? If a man has not a wife, he soon wants to be afloat again. But Captain Wentworth, cried Louisa, how vexed you must have been when you had to come to the asp and see an old thing that they had given you. I knew pretty well what she was before that day, said he, smiling. I had no more discoveries to make than you would have as to the fashion and stretch of any old police, which you had seen lent out amongst half your acquaintance, since you could remember, and at last on some wet day it is lent to yourself. Um, sorry, I'm trying to bring the bell further back from the mic. I failed that time. But um, a police, um, P-E-L-I-S-S-E, um, for those of you who actually can understand how spelling and pronunciation and phonetics work, um, I just assume it's pronounced police. Someone is going to have to correct me. I assume it'll be Sarah. Um, that's kind of like a, a, a longer overcoat for ladies to wear over their dresses. Um, yeah, anyway, so that's why it's lent to you on some wet day and you'd seen your friends loaned amongst each other. So, Ah, oh, she was a dear old asp to me. She did all that I wanted. I knew she would. I knew that we should either go to the bottom together or that she would be the making of me. I never had two days of foul weather in all the time I was at sea in her. After taking privateers enough to be very entertaining, I had the good luck in my passage home the next autumn in the fall to within the very French frigate I wanted. I brought her into Plymouth, and here was another instance of luck. We had not been six hours on the sound when um, the sound was um, the like the big docking port out just outside of Plymouth. Um, so that I think it might be an island. I should have looked that up ahead of time. But I know it's part of Plymouth where they do a lot of their sailing stuffs. We had not been six hours on in the sound when the gale came in, which lasted four days and nights which would have been done for the poor old ass in half as much time. Our great, our touch with the great nation having not much improved our condition. Four and twenty hours later, I should have been a gallant Captain Wentworth in a small paragraph at one of the corner of the newspapers, being lost in only a sloop. Nobody would have thought about me. Anne's shudderings were her to herself alone, but the Miss Musgroves could be as open as they were sincere in their exclamations of pity and horror. And then, I suppose, said Mrs. Musgrove in a low voice, as if thinking aloud, so he went to the poor Lisconia, and there met with our poor boy, Charles, my dear, beckoning him to her. I do ask Captain Wentworth where it was he first met with your poor brother. I always forget. 
It was at Gibraltar, mother, I know. Dick had been left ill at Gibraltar with a recommendation of his former captain to Captain Wentworth. Oh, but Charles, tell Captain Wentworth he need not be afraid of mentioning poor Dick before me, for it would rather be a pleasure to hear talked of by such a good friend. Charles, being somewhat more mindful of the probabilities of the case, only nodded in reply and walked away. The girls were now hunting for the Laconia, and Captain Wentworth could not deny himself the pleasure of taking the previous volume into his own hands to save them the trouble, and once more read aloud the little statement of her name and rate and pre present non-commissioned class, observing over it she too had been one of the best friends he ever had. Ah, oh, those were pleasant days when I had the Laconia. How fast I made money in her. A friend of mine and I had such a lovely cruise together off the West Indies. Poor Harville, sister, you know that he wanted money worse than myself. He had a wife, excellent fellow. I shall never forget his happiness. He felt it all so much for her sake. I wished for him again in the next summer when I still had the same luck in the Mediterranean. And I am sure, sir, said Mrs. Musgrove, it was a very lucky day for us when you did captain that ship. We shall never forget what you did. Her feelings made her speak low, and Captain Wentworth, hearing only part, and probably not having Dick Musgrove at all near his thoughts, looked rather surprised as if waiting for more. "'My brother,' whispered the girls, "'Mamma is thinking of poor Richard.' "'Poor dear fellow,' continued Mrs. Musgrove, "'he was grown so steady and such an excellent correspondent when he was under your care.' Ah, uh, it would have been a happy thing if he had never left you. I assure you, Captain Wentworth, we are sorry he ever left you. There was a momentary expression in Captain Wentworth's face at this speech, a certain glance of his bright eye and curl of his handsome mouth, which convinced Anne that, instead of sharing in Mrs. Musgrove's kind wishes as to her son, he probably had been at some pains to get rid of him. But it was too transient an indulgement of self-amusement to be detected by any who understood him less than herself. In that moment, he was perfectly collected and serious, and almost instantly afterwards, coming up on the sofa, which she and Mrs. Musgrove were sitting, took place by the latter and entered into conversation with her, in a low voice, about her son, doing with it so much sympathy and natural grace, as he showed the kindest consideration for all that was real and unobserved in a parent's feelings." They were actually on the same sofa, for Mrs. Musgrove had most readily made room for him. They were divided only by Mrs. Musgrove. It was no insignificant barrier, indeed. Mrs. Musgrove was of a comfortable, substantial size, infinitely more fitted by nature to express good cheer and good humor than tenderness and sentiment. And while Anne's ag... And ag... Ag... Bleh. And while the agitations of Anne's slender form and pensive face may be considered as very completely screened, Captain Wentworth should be allowed some credit for the self-command of which he had attended to her large, fat sighings over the destiny of a son whom nobody had cared for. Personal sighs and mental sorrow certainly have no proportions. A large, bulky figure has a right to be so deeply afflicted as the most graceful set of limbs in the world. But fair or not fair, there was an unbecoming conjunctions which will soon patronize in vain, which taste cannot toler tolerate, will ridicule with sighs. I think they just said that fat people can't 
are allowed to be sad, but you're also allowed to think that they're silly. Yep. Pretty sure that's what they just said. Pretty sure I'm taking offense to that. Um, but I'm going to move on. Fat jokes aside. Um, yeah, might have to study that passage later uh, in more detail. But, uh, yeah, Alex might tell me what it means because I'm definitely ready to take offense. Alex, that's your homework. The Admiral, after taking two or three refreshing turns about the room with his hands behind him, being called in order by his wife, now came to Captain Wentworth, and without any observation of what he might be interrupting, thinking only of his own thoughts, began with, If you had been a week later at Lisbon last spring, Frederick, you would have been asked to give passage to Lady Mary Grierson and her daughters. Should I? I'm glad I was not there a week later then. The admiral abused him for his want of gallantry. He defended himself, though professing he would never willingly admit any ladies on board a ship of his, excepting for a ball or visit, which a few hours might comprehend. "'But I know myself,' said he. "'This is from no want of gallantry towards them. It is rather from feeling how impossible it is, with all one's efforts and all one's sacrifices, to make the accommodation on board such as women ought to have.' There can be no want of gallantry, Admiral, in rating the claims of women to every personal comfort high, and that is what I do. I hate to hear of women on board or see them on board a ship under my command. I shall ever convey a family of ladies anywhere if I can help it. This brought his sister upon him. Oh, Frederick, but I cannot believe it of you. An idle refinement... Women may be comfortable on board, as in the best house in England. I believe I have lived as much on board as most women, and I know nothing superior to the accommodations of a man of war. I declare I have not a comfort or indulgence beyond me, even at Kellich Hall, with a kind bow to Anne, beyond which I had in most ships I have lived in, and I have been in five altogether. Nothing to the purpose, replied "'Nothing to the purpose,' replied her brother. "'You were living with your husband, and were the only woman on board.' "'But you, yourself, brought Mrs. Harville, her sister, her cousin, and three children, "'round from Portsmouth to Plymouth. "'Where was the superfine, extraordinary gallantry of yours, then?' "'All merged with my friends, Sophia. "'I would assist any brother's officer's wife I could.' and I would bring anything of Harville's from the world end if he wanted it, but I do not imagine that I did not feel it an evil in self, itself. Depend upon it that they were all perfectly comfortable. I might not like them the better for that, perhaps. Such a number of women and children have no right to be comfortable on board. My dear Frederick, you are talking quite idly. Pray, what would be become of us poor sailors' wives, who want to be conveyed to one port or another after our husbands, if everybody had your feelings. My feelings, you see, did not prevent me from taking Mrs. Harville and all her family to Plymouth. But I hate to hear you talking so, like a fine gentleman, and as if women were all fine ladies instead of irrational creatures. We none of us expect to be in smooth water all our days. Ah, my dear, said the admiral, when he has got a wife, he will sing a different tune. When he is married, if we, have ha if we have the good luck to live to see another war, 
We shall see him, as you and I, a great many others have done. We shall have him very thankful to anybody that will bring him his wife. Aye, we shall. Now I have done, cried Captain Wentworth. When once married people begin to attack me with, Oh, you will think very differently when you are married. I can only say, No, I shall not. And then they will say again, Yes, you will. And there is an end of it. He got up and moved away. "'What a great traveller you must have been, ma'am,' Mrs. Musgrove said to Mrs. Croft. "'Perfectly well, ma'am. In the fifteen years of my marriage, though many women have done more, I have crossed the Atlantic four times, and been once to the East Indies and back again, and only once, besides being in different places about home, Cork and Lisbon and Gibraltar, but I never went beyond the Straits, and I was never in the West Indies.' We do not call Bermuda or Bahama, you know, the West Indies. Mrs. Musgrove had not a word to say in dissent. She could not accuse herself of ever having called them anything in the whole course of her life. I do assure you, ma'am, pursued Mrs. Croft, that nothing can exceed the accommodations of a man of war. I speak, you know, of, of the higher rates. When you come to a frigate, of course, you are more confined, though any reasonable woman may per be perfectly happy in one of them. "'and I can safely say that it was the happiest part of my life "'to have been spent aboard a ship. "'While we were together, you know, there was nothing to be feared. "'Thank God! "'I have always been blessed with excellent health, "'and no climate disagrees with me. "'A little disordered always in the first twenty-four hours of going to sea, "'but I never knew any sickness afterwards. "'The only time I really suffered in mind or body "'was the only time I fancied myself unwell "'or had any idea of danger "'was the winter I passed myself at the deal the admiral, Captain Croft, then, was in the North Seas. I lived in perpetual fright at the time, and I had all manner of imaginary complaints from not knowing what to do with myself or when I should hear from his next. But as long as we could be together, nothing ailed me. I never met with the smallest inconvenience. I, to be sure. Well, yes, indeed. I am quite of your opinion, Mrs. Croft, was Mrs. Musgrove's answer. "'There is nothing so bad as a separation. "'I am quite of your opinion. "'I know what it is, "'for Mr. Musgrove always attends the assizes, "'and I am so glad when they are over "'and he is safe back again.'" Uh, the assizes are like um, the local magistrate's court um, that would happen periodically, and so he'd go to that um, as a landed gentry type. Um the evening ended with dancing. On its being proposed, Anne offered her services as usual, and though her eyes would sometimes be filled with tears as she sat at the instrument, she was extremely glad to be employed and desired nothing in return but to be unobserved. It was a merry, joyous party, and no one seemed in higher spirits than Captain Wentworth. She felt that he had everything to elevate him, which general attention and deference, and especially the attention of young women, could do. The Miss Haters, the females of of the family of cousins already mentioned, were apparently admitted to the honor of being in love with him, and as far as Henrietta and Louisa, they both seemed so entirely occupied by him that nothing but the continued appearance of the most perfect goodwill between themselves could have made it credible that they were not decided rivals. If he were a little spoilt by such universal, such eager admiration, who could wonder? These were some of the thoughts which occupied Anne, while her fingers were mechanically at work, proceeded for a half hour together, equally without air or without consciousness. 
Once she felt that he was looking at herself, observing her altered features perhaps, trying to trace in them the ruins of a face which had once charmed him, and once she knew that he must have spoken of her, she was hardly aware of it till she heard the answer, but then she was sure of his having asked his partner whether Miss Elliot never danced. The answer was, Oh, no, she has never. She has quite given up dancing. She had rather play. She's never tired of playing. Once, too, he spoke to her. She had left the instrument on the dance being over, and he sat down to try and make out an air with which he gave to the Miss Grusgroves an idea of. Unintentionally, she returned to that part of the room, and he saw her, and instantly rising, said with studied politeness, "'I beg your pardon, madam. This is your seat.' And though she immediately drew back with a decided negative, he was not to be induced to sit down again. Anne did not wish for more of such looks and speeches. His cold politeness, his ceremonious grace, were worse than anything.' End chapter 8. Okay, well, what do we all think of that chapter? Um, we, <laughs> we learned that I had to do two male voices back to back, and that kind of threw me, because I only have one guy voice, apparently, uh, so I pitched the Admiral lower, and thought it had Wentworth, and then all of a sudden Charles was there too, and I was like, oh no, what voice? <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I've run out of voices because Mrs. Croft lost her voice, and it became just my regular voice, and yeah, I was a bit all over the place with the voices today, um, but it was an interesting chapter, um, you know, I... And she's just, it's just so funny. She totally, she caught him when he was, you know, had his moment of amusement. And I was one of those, she, she was like, well, I knew because I knew him so well. And then, and then, but no, but everybody else missed it. Um, and I thought it was very interesting that she, she's afraid of his looking at her and, and um, judging the ruins of her features. It reminded me of what um, Alex said about the last chapter, but Anne does have a touch of her own vanity. Um, probably having grown up in a home with a very vain parent, she gained her own sense of vanity, um, and I I think it's perfectly reasonable vanity. I worry about who doesn't want to, you know, who would want their ex to show up and then know that you look way worse than your ex? Especially, like, you you look worse than you did before, but then your ex aged well, and yeah, no, I would, I think everyone would have that. Oh, no, he's looking at my ugly face now. Um, and I did like the line that Anne played and just hoped to be ignored. Um, it says a lot about her character. It's a little sad to me because, of course, I associate that kind of feeling with, depression the only time I want to be ignored is when I'm super super feeling emo um so I never go through these phases where I want to be ignored unless it's because I'm depressed so um one of one of you might have to tell me if wanting to be ignored is just a normal emotion or if Anne is depressed um yeah so they uh they're finally together. I think this plot with the, you know, the brother who everyone was glad that he died, uh, is kind of an interesting little 
subplot, but um, it was definitely a way to get the characters to interact more. Because from a writer's perspective, Jane Austen was having trouble, I would assume, because how do you make two people talk to each other who don't want to talk to each other? How, what excuse do you have to bring them into company together? Um, and so you give more connections between these two families so they have more reason to sit near each other and talk over certain subjects. And I see it as a writing device. Um, you create this weird little backstory that's slightly amusing because that's always a win, but mostly because you needed um, a vehicle for conveyance for your furthering your plot. Uh, so I definitely see it as a, she did it as sort of a writing technique. So you all let me know if you think that's what it is or if it's something else. Um, we, uh, we're moving into more and more exciting waters, so to speak, here as we go. Um, let me see how long. I always, I always give you a length update. The next chapter is, let's see, it starts on page 72. And goes to page 78. So that's not a super long chapter next time either. Um, yeah, we're getting um, to some of my favorite. We passed my absolute, absolute favorite part of the book. But there's like, oh no, we haven't. My absolute, absolute favorite part of the book is later on. But we passed my second favorite part earlier. And that was when everyone was asking Anne to listen to their woes. Um, so we're getting to my favorite, favorite part, and I'm really excited to share that with you all. Um, but yeah, let me know how it's going, y'all. I love getting messages. I love hearing from you. And, oh, see, now my cat has curled up and has just gone to sleep like a good thing. Not a care in the world. Doesn't want to bite a book. Doesn't want to fight anything. Happy, happy, happy. And now I'm done recording. Why, why can't you cooperate, animal? Anyway, hope you all are doing good. Hope you all are feeling good. Um, and we will talk to one another slash you'll listen to me another day. Bye for now.